Good morning and welcome. Welcome to RHC. Keep your Bibles right there on Acts 25, 13 to 23a. That will be our text for this morning. I'm excited to announce that today marks the beginning of a week-long celebration for Christians all around the world called Passion Week. Passion Week focuses on the last week of the Lord Jesus' earthly life. Passion Week begins with Palm Sunday today, which points to the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. We then move to Good Friday. Uh, There's a day or two in between, but we, in a traditional sense, just shift right over to Good Friday. But we move to Good Friday, which points to Jesus' crucifixion and death. And then to Resurrection Sunday, or what we here call Easter Sunday, which literally points to Jesus' resurrection. Um, Normally, we would break away from our normal teaching series. We're usually teaching through books here at this church. We've been in the book of Acts for a while, and normally when we have holidays and these special events, we would step away from that series to... um, uh, look at scriptures that have to do with these special days, uh, you know, like Passion Week or Resurrection Sunday, Easter, or these things. Normally we would just kind of step away, uh, but God has a different plan for this uh, for us this year, and I think that's pretty cool. Acts chapter 25, where we've been in the last couple of weeks, actually points to each of those special Uh, momentous events in terms of like Palm Sunday. It points to Palm Sunday in a sense and definitely points to the crucifixion on Friday and then it points to resurrection. These are the things that we will see in this chapter and so God has uh, very graciously allowed us to stay in Acts chapter 25, not to leave our series uh, and we can address these special uh, events and things right here from the text that we're in. I think it's really cool. Our plan for this morning will be to skim through uh, chapter 25, verse 13 to 22, which is a repeating or repetitive narrative. In other words, it's stuff that we've already read and studied in previous chapters. And that's one of the things you'll notice about uh, the book of Acts. When some sort of a major thing takes place, maybe Paul preaches a sermon in a particular city for the first time, Luke pretty much records that first time around the the whole breadth of his sermon, or at least most of it. And then when Paul would preach uh, the same kind of sermon in another city in latter chapters, later chapters, Luke would abbreviate that sermon and just give maybe uh, a couple of points. And so what Luke does is he's not overly repetitive. He doesn't, he, he talks about the same things over and over, but he abbreviates them every time he does it. Or he does what we would call summarizes. And so this chapter is filled with with a a summary of Paul's preaching. Uh, He said these things before in other uh, settings, and so it's just sort of abbreviated and summarized. And so we're not going to spend a whole lot of time, uh, you know, re-studying, re-expositing, re-impacting and dividing this text. We've been there before. You can always go back and listen to the sermons online. All of 
our Acts sermons are posted online. There's almost three years worth of teaching there, so you'll be busy for a while. So we're just going to kind of skim through 25, 13 to 22. Uh, and then when we get to 23a, uh, we'll pause there, and that's where most of the sermon will be focused. We're going to look at King Agrippa's entry uh, in Caesarea at the audience hall, and then we're going to compare his entrance, this grand entrance that he makes into this particular place. We're going to compare it with the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ, and I don't want to leave it at that, although I know Palm Sunday is all about the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ. I also want to juxtapose it with the return of Jesus Christ or King Jesus. So we're going to look at Agrippa's entry into the audience hall at Caesarea. We're going to look at Jesus's triumphal entry at Jerusalem. That's the whole Palm Sunday emphasis. And then we're also going to look at the return of King Jesus when he actually leaves heaven again to come to earth and what he's going to do in that situation. Uh, I'd like to um, begin with a word of prayer and then we'll pick it up at uh, verse 13. Father God, open our hearts and minds to the truth this morning. Lord, without the aid of the Holy Spirit, um, your word, uh, this sermon uh, will just fall on deaf ears. Uh, we might hear, but we won't have the ability to comprehend understand, obey, and live out. And so, Lord, send the Holy Spirit in power uh, to open our hearts and minds to the truth. If there be anyone here who has yet to receive Jesus Christ, we pray that you would work that miracle of gospel grace in their life this morning, that they might understand and repent and, and turn to Jesus Christ. Sanctify your saints today. Build up your saints. Educate us grow us, make us more like Jesus Christ today. That's our desire through the proclamation of your word. And so be here with us today, Jesus, and minister to us and send the Holy Spirit in power. And may you receive all the glory and praise uh, and gratitude through all that we do here today. And we pray this in the mighty matchless name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So we're going to pick it up at verse 13. I'll go ahead and read it, and uh, I hope you're there right now. Uh, it says, now when, now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. Uh, we have to back up just a little bit uh, just to look at the context again. I know that most of us here are familiar with these things. You've been here for this series, but we always have visitors, and, and it's good just to kind of uh, bridge the gap, if you will. And so, uh, just a little bit of context. The Apostle Paul, um, probably the greatest, I think in my humble opinion, the greatest of the apostles, one of the greatest, probably the greatest Christian to ever live. He was um, missional. Uh, he was an apostle, which is a, a you know, it's a it's a position that only a, a handful had. Uh, he he was just an incredible saint for Jesus Christ. The things that he did in and through the power of the Holy Spirit, planting churches throughout the Roman Empire. I mean, it's just his work is just unparalleled. And uh, and, and missional agencies and Christians for the last two thousand years have been trying to follow his example in planting churches and spreading the gospel. And he is just, he is the standard for missions work. He's an amazing guy. And, and he had been 
jailed in Caesarea, basically for proclaiming the gospel, but really at the request of the Jews. He had, uh, he was, of course, himself a Jew, but he was converted to Christ on the Damascus Road, and and he proclaimed the gospel before Jews and Gentiles, which are non-Jews, uh, all the time, and he made a lot of enemies. Um, you know, people don't like the gospel. They don't like the fact that they're sinners and that they need a Savior. And Paul made a lot of enemies. And one of the enemies that he had, his, probably one of his greatest enemies, at least we see in the book of Acts, were the Jews. Not all Jews, but the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the, you know, the high priests, the religious, the uber-religious Jews. They really had it in for Paul, and they hated him, and they wanted to put him to death. And so he is in jail at Caesarea uh, because of them, essentially. They claimed that Paul had, and they claimed this before the Roman court, uh, before uh, Governor Felix and uh, also Governor Festus, um, these were two Roman governors. They they brought this case against Paul, and they claimed that he had basically broken every law under the sun, uh, that he was a seditionist, that he was sacrilegious, uh, and that he um, and he was just an all around bad guy that broke not only Jewish laws but Roman laws and these things. And so they were trying to get him killed, uh, but when they went to court, they couldn't prove it. They couldn't prove their allegations. I mean, what what they had against him was mere allegation. They didn't have any proof. They didn't have any witnesses or anything that had witnessed Paul being a lawbreaker. And as we've already studied, Paul was uh, a, an incredible minister of the gospel, but he was also an incredible law-abiding citizen. He did not go out of his way to stir up trouble. He didn't stir up trouble. Trouble stirred up when he preached the gospel, but he didn't go around creating tumults and riots and these things. He was a law-abiding citizen. He was submissive to governmental officials. He had written extensively about submitting to officials, government officials in his epistles. I mean, he was a model citizen. And so the Jews, these religious Jews, had no proof. They couldn't prove that he had done anything wrong. Uh, and, you know, during the last trial before Governor Festus, Governor Festus listened to the Jews present their case, and he listened to Paul present his defense. And he came to the conclusion that Paul was innocent. He knew that Paul was innocent, but he was a new governor. He was young and inexperienced, and he was afraid to set Paul free because he knew that those religious Jews would cause trouble, that they would retaliate, that they would stir up riots. And this is what the Jews were known for. Uh, back in these days, these religious leaders were crybabies. If they couldn't get their way then they would go around and stir up people and cause trouble and create a riot. And that's exactly what happened with Jesus back in Jerusalem 20 years earlier. Uh, you know, they wanted Jesus hung on a cross. Pontius Pilate, the governor, didn't find anything wrong with Jesus and wanted to turn him loose. And what did they do? They went around to the crowds and they, they um, you know, coerced. They persuaded the crowds to cry out for Jesus's death, for his crucifixion. And and, you know, they even said to Pontius Pilate, if you set this man free, you're no friend of the Caesar, and which basically means they would go and try to tattletale on Pilate and say that he had broken some kind of Roman law, that he was opposed to his own government. And so they were blackmailers. They were crybabies. They did whatever they could to get their way. And they were relentless. They just didn't stop. You know, if they went into one court setting and tried to get somebody 
killed or get the death penalty and that didn't work out for them, they would try and try again. And uh, they, in many ways, represent, and, and they were led, honestly, what was driving them, it was dark forces, it was the devil, it was the demons. I mean, the devil and the demons are opposed to all righteousness, they're opposed to Christ, they're opposed to the church, they're opposed to truth. And so these men, these religious leaders, were led by the devil and the demons. And so, and what we can see through their example and their relentlessness is that we have a relentless devil. He never gives up. He never stops. He's always tempting us. He's always attacking us. He's always arguing against us in heaven. And Jesus is our mediator. He's like our attorney who represents us and he, and he argues against us the devil but that's what we're dealing with here friends we have a devil that doesn't stop and we see that in the persistence and relentlessness of these jewish jewish religious leaders and so festus knew because of their persistence because of their zealousness if he turned paul loose they would unleash on him and he would he would have to deal with riots and, and tumults and trouble and, and strife and you know sedition and all these things and, and the primary responsibility for a roman governor was to maintain the peace and so this is why they dealt with riots very quickly they just went down and, and quelled those who were starting riots very quickly because uh, any riot in a roman province signified that the roman governor in charge of that province did not have control and wasn't a very good leader and so this was a serious thing. He couldn't let him go because he knew these Jews would cause him great harm and trouble. And the interesting thing about that is that Paul knew this. He understood that Festus was in a bind. He wanted to be set freed in a sense because he knew he was innocent. We're talking about Paul here. But he also did not want to cause Festus trouble. Again, Paul was a model citizen. Paul, you know, adhered to the laws as long as those laws didn't weren't unrighteous or opposed to God. He was a law-abiding citizen. He didn't want to cause Festus additional trouble. In fact, he actually wanted to stay in prison so he could get to Rome. Uh, he wanted to go preach the gospel before the Caesar, if possible, and in the nation of Rome. And so what Paul did for Festus was he offered him a way out. He, he, he gave, Festus didn't want to release Paul, but he didn't want to keep him in jail. So he was in this situation. And Paul offered him a way out by appealing to Caesar. This is what we saw in our last sermon. He basically, Paul said, I wanted my case to go before uh, the Roman emperor. And, and that was a way for Festus to get out of the situation. Festus could ship Paul. He could answer his, he could, he could grant his request and ship him away. And the case would leave his hands. He wouldn't have to worry about the Jews. He wouldn't have to worry about his reputation. He wouldn't have to worry about the safety of his province or any of those things. And Festus, you know, walked away from Paul in this court setting. This again, we talked about this in our last sermon. And, and he deliberated with some of his officials and he came back and said, Paul, your request, your request is, is granted. You are going to be transferred to Rome. And therefore, the case left his hand. So Festus was in a, in a good position, if you will. He accepted, and that's kind of where we left off last time, Festus accepted Paul's appeal and then began to make the arrangements to transfer him. Now, many days after that particular trial, King Agrippa, which is King Agrippa II, came to Caesarea with Bernice, and when they arrived, they, and this is what our text says here in 13, 
When they arrived, they greeted Governor Festus. Uh, it actually may have been customary for a king over a particular region to visit a new governor and welcome him. And I think that's the case here, because Festus had taken over for Felix, who failed. Uh, remember, Nero removed Felix because he failed at his post, and he uh, planted Festus in his place, who was his golden boy. Nero loved Festus and put him in place, and so he was a new governor uh, in that particular province over the city of Caesarea. And it may have been customary for kings, for Jewish kings at least, in some of those territories to go visit a new Roman governor, to begin to build a relationship with him. I mean, they were going to have to work together, no matter which way you looked at it. And it is true that the Jewish kings were subservient to uh, Roman leaders. Uh, Jewish kings did not prevail over any, you know, governmental official in Rome. Rome was the... Um, Rome was in control, if you will. They were the dominant force. They were the conquering entity or empire in the area. So what they said went. And so these kings were subservient to them, but the kings still had some power. And so I think what we see playing out here is our Festus was in Caesarea and Agrippa II came to visit him and to welcome him and to congratulate him on his governorship. I believe that's what's playing out here. Now, Agrippa II was the son of, obviously, Agrippa I, like Harry Hanley Sr., and you got Junior back there in the back, except I know these two guys. They're a lot better guys than these dudes. So he was the son of Agrippa I, and he was also the great-grandson of Herod the Great. You're familiar with him. That's that's the king that came around like during the very early days of Jesus' life when he was a little toddler, you know, when he was like little Cohen back there, you know, and, and he was the guy that basically developed all of Palestine, built all these palaces and prisons, and he was probably one of the greatest builders in Israel's history in terms of just building up the community and the, the nation, if you will. And so this guy that we're referencing today was the great-grandson of him. And, and by no means was Herod the Great great. He was great in terms of his accomplishments, but not in terms of his character. Agrippa, our Agrippa here, Herod Agrippa II, he ruled over the northern part of, uh, we would, I guess today we would call it Palestine. Um, you know, Judea and Caesarea, because Caesarea is in the Judean province, was not part of his jurisdiction. And so that becomes kind of an interesting thing there. Okay, if Caesarea, you're the king of this whole region, and really that doesn't mean that he is in higher position than a Roman governor. I think he's still subservient to that. But this governor in this territory is not part of his jurisdiction. So that causes you to say, then why do you go out of your way to go meet a new governor that, that really doesn't have control over you? that isn't in your jurisdiction. And so that's kind of an interesting thing there, but he does it nonetheless. He goes and visits him, and it's a bit of a mystery as to why. Uh, it could be because, uh, for whatever reason, uh, Nero, the emperor at the time, appointed Agrippa II to be the treasurer over the temple in Jerusalem, which was in Judea in a different province. And so I don't know why Agrippa II was appointed by Nero as the treasurer, but apparently that's what happened. And so maybe that's the connection. 
I don't know for sure why, but that seems to be the case. Now, the text says that Agrippa, King Agrippa, was accompanied by Bernice. We read that. And it's important to know that Bernice was not his wife. Uh, You would think immediately that, okay, so he came with her. That must be his wife. He's a king. She must be the queen. And that's not the case. Bernice was actually his sister and his girlfriend. I'll just leave it at that. I know there's children in here, so I was trying to figure out how can I say this where it's still weird and truthful, but not really weird. Um, and, but it is really weird, right? I mean, at least to us it is. I don't care how you spin it. Uh, you know, so this uh, woman was his sister, his girlfriend, and... Uh, Interesting, my wife and I were talking about this, and she says, well, you know, that's how the Romans were back then, you know, and I said, yeah, but he isn't Roman. Uh, he's Jewish, and so, but, and, and, and the thing is, is that their relationship was absolute pure scandal in Rome, of all places, where it's almost like Vegas, well, it is like Vegas, anything goes, and so their relationship, like, dude, he's dating his sister, you know, It was known in Rome, and it was a scandalous affair. It was a scandalous relationship throughout all of Rome. And so that's an interesting thing. And so that's kind of what we're dealing with here. They were what we would say the talk of the town. And rightfully so, right? If we had saw that, seen that here, we would say, ooh, that's very, yeah, right? That's that's really out there, because it really is to us. It's a very foreign thing. Now, it was also known that Bernice was, uh, uh, in modern-day terms, a player. Okay, I know Bruce doesn't know what that means. He's thinking, she was really good at cards. No, no, that's not what that means. You know, she was really good at the blackjack table, you know? No, that, Bruce, I'm sorry. Uh, she, let's put it this way, she wasn't faithful in her relationship to her brother or really to any other guy. She was a player... Uh, She had multiple things going on with multiple men at a time. She would stray from King Agrippa and go off and have relationships with other people. Uh, Interestingly, I guess when you get to this level in prestige and all that, right, because if you're touring around with a king like this, you're pretty well known, kind of like a Hollywood star or something. And so she actually had a relationship with Emperor Vespasian, uh, and then his son later on, Titus, who was basically one of the generals of one of Rome's, well, a Roman army, if you will. And so she had different things happening here. Uh, I would say that Agrippa and Bernice were totally Jerry Springer material, right? And in, in, in you're saying to yourself, great, our pastor watches that. Um, I don't know what it is about that program, but when you're channel surfing and you see it, for some reason, there's a natural attraction to stop for a minute, and then, you know, five minutes later to turn it off, burn your TV, and take a shower, you know? Um, So I have to admit, I've stopped and watched it for a moment. That's my girlfriend! No, that's my baby mama! You know, that's what you usually see, and then you realize it's Agrippa II and Bernice on there fighting over child custody, you know? So they they were drama, Big-time drama. And uh, interesting, too, uh, Bernice always managed to come back to King Agrippa. Uh, If you 
they're mentioned a few times in the Acts narrative, but you get the sense that they were inseparable in some way. It's, it's like she goes off and does her thing, and he's like, ah, oh, heartbroken, but then she comes back. I don't know if it was a money issue or if she really, really loved him. I don't know. It was a bizarre situation. It sounds a little bit like Agrippa was addicted and Bernice was codependent. And that's kind of how that played out. And, and I thought, oh, and another thing, too, that's interesting is that they had a sister. Because remember, they're brother and sister. And they had a sister, and her name was Drew Scylla. And she was married to that champion of righteousness, Felix. So dysfunction has a way of infecting every branch on a family tree, doesn't it? Right? You know, you got Drusilla, you got these two, and this is, this is an amazing family. And, and keep in mind that they're Herods. So if you look at history, you've got a really dysfunctional, crazy, power-hungry, adulterous, corrupt family. And uh, it's an interesting thing. Um, another thing that's interesting is that the Romans considered King Agrippa an expert on Jewish affairs. Uh, we might say that he was their go-to guy. Because again, the Romans uh, were not well-versed in Jewish religion or Jewish life. They were conquerors. Uh, their idea was to Hellenize all the provinces that they conquered. It wasn't like, we're going to come in and let you kind of keep doing your thing, and we'll learn from you, and then we'll all be happy and do these things together. When they went in and conquered a people, they uh, they Hellenized them. They made them Greek, if you will. They Romanized them. And so these are our gods. This is our way of life. This is our judicial system. They allowed some, you know, gave some latitude for religion and those things, especially with the Jews because they created trouble over everything, especially religion. But for the most part, you know, they didn't know about Jewish affairs. And Agrippa, King Agrippa was Jewish in a way, although he was grown he was raised in Rome but he was a Jewish king and so they relied on him if there was some kind of an issue or something happening that was beyond their understanding this is the guy they would go to and say help us to understand what's happening in this situation because it just doesn't make any sense to us they felt like they were living in backwards land you know it's like <laughs> the Jews are doing all these weird things um he was their go-to guy a little later in Jerusalem just a handful of years later, uh, from where we're at in the narrative here, uh, the Jews in Jerusalem began to plot and plan a revolt against the Romans. Um, they'd had it up to here with the, the occupation, with the you know suppression and 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 the slavery and the brutality of the Roman regime, and they started to conspire and you know right in Jerusalem the hub. The zealots came in and, and began to think militarily how they might be able to remove the Romans. And so they all started to work together. The Sanhedrin was in on this thing, although they were trying to, you know, be like politicians and like smile at your face. Everything's great. Turn around. We've got to get rid of these guys, you know, typical pol politician. And so the Jews came together and started to plot and plan a revolt. And King Agrippa, the guy that we're talking about here, actually tried to stop it. He came in and said, this is not a good idea, it's a bad idea, it's not going to end well for us. We're talking about Rome, and they were at the height, the pinnacle of their, you know, empire, if you will. And so he tried to reason with people. Despite his efforts, the revolt started in 66 AD, 
And once violence and protest and these things started to magnify, Agrippa, King Agrippa began to side with the Romans. And that turned him into a traitor to his own people. They were like, oh, this guy's terrible. He's on their team. And, you know, four years later in 70 AD, what happened? Jerusalem was sacked and destroyed by General Titus, the guy who had been dating Bernice. Just annihilated it. Their beloved temple was laid in absolute ruin. There wasn't a stone left unturned. All the jewels and the gold, everything was just taken. They just annihilated that place, pillaged it. The Romans absolutely pillaged it. They besieged it for a while and then finally broke through all the walls and everything and just annihilated it like a blitzkrieg, if you will, from World War II where the Germans just plowed through countries, you know, just left a wake of destruction. Over 600,000 Jews in the city of Jerusalem were slaughtered, just annihilated, wasted. The streets were filled with blood. It was a terrible, terrible thing. I suppose we could say that those who were in charge of this revolt should have listened to Agrippa, right? Yeah, well, God's providence. And so that's who he is in a sense. Now let's look at how Festus tried to benefit from King Agrippa's presence and expertise, right? Because now Agrippa's in the city. He's come and, and he's come to greet this governor, and, and this governor is in a bit of a kibosh, in a bit of a situation, and so this guy is an expert in Jewish affairs, and so Festus is going to lay some information before him to see what he can glean. I'll just read it, 14 through 21, and as they stayed there many days, speaking of Agrippa and Bernice, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, there is a man left, by, uh, left prisoner by Felix, And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation, translation death, against him. I answered them uh, that it was not the custom of the Romans to give anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had an opportunity to make uh, his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Love that. Being at a loss for how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem, speaking of Paul, and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, speaking of Nero, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. And so, you know, what we see here is a, what we studied in the first section of 25 and, and then really a retelling of what's happened in chapter 24 and all that. I don't want to go into a lot of detail here. I just want to bring out eight primary details. I'll move through them quickly. Not going to say a lot about them. There's eight primary details in this section. I'll quickly note them. Number one, Festus was in the process of transferring Paul's case to the emperor. And as a last ditch effort, he presented it before Agrippa to see if Agrippa could help. You know, the paperwork had been filed the ball was rolling. There's no going back now. He's going to emperor. He's going to the emperor. He's going to see Nero. 
but in a way, he still wants to get his mind around what's playing out here. Can you help me, Agrippa, understand these doctrinal differences? I mean, they want to kill the guy, and I'm listening to the case, and I don't get it. So he's, he's trying to get some wisdom from Agrippa, maybe just for his own peace of mind. I don't know. And notice how Festus put the hammer on his predecessor. There is a man left prisoner by Felix. Uh, translation, I'm dealing with the situation and drama of the last guy who didn't resolve this issue. And remember, Paul had been kept for two years before Festus, you know, right? Before he transferred into the governorship. So uh, he left this situation for me. I'm trying to get my mind around it. I'm trying to figure it out. Festus told Agrippa that he went to Jerusalem to speak with Paul's accusers. Okay, when I found out about this prisoner, I went, immediately went down to that city to find out what's going on. They laid out their case against him, and, I, and they asked for the death penalty, is what he tells Agrippa. Festus told Agrippa that he refused their request and that they had to come to Caesarea to present their charges against Paul in a court of law, where obviously Paul would be able to defend himself. Fourth, Festus told Agrippa that he wasted no time and called court into session as soon as everyone arrived, when we went back to Caesarea, it was like the next day. I mean, this guy was Johnny on the spot, man. He didn't mess around. Five, um, Paul told, why did I put that? Paul told Agrippa that the Jews argued their case, but there was no validity to it. Okay, not Paul told him, goofball. Festus told Agrippa. Yeah, why did I write that? It's like, and I look at it, and it's like the entire sermon comes to a crashing halt because I put the wrong name in there, right? And I wasn't really good at, I'm not good at what I do, so I let you know that. I should have just breezed over it. But anyways, Festus told Agrippa that the Jews argued their case, and then he says to Agrippa, There's, there was no validity to it, though. There was nothing substantial about it. There was no evidence, no proof. And, and I love how he says, just as I suspected. Uh, they didn't really have anything going on here, and I knew that from the get-go. Uh, and then he says it was based on accusations and points of difference over their religion. And so this is what he tells Agrippa. Festus told Agrippa that the main point of difference between Paul and the Jews, right? He identifies it here. The main point of difference between these guys, the reason why there's trouble is because Paul asserts that, you know, he says that they killed Jesus, but he asserts that he's alive. That's the main reason why all of this is going on. We're talking about the resurrection here, right? How convenient for this week. He says, you know, there was one doctrinal difference between them that set this whole thing on fire, and that's that they killed Jesus, Paul says, but then Paul asserts that he is alive. He is alive and well, you know, and so he says, hey, Agrippa, this is, this is what's going on with that situation? And then seven, Festus told Agrippa that he offered Paul a deal to bring him to Jerusalem and to try the case himself. Eight, Festus told Agrippa that Paul refused the deal and appealed to Caesar and that he was now waiting to transfer him and the entire case to the emperor. And so that's just a very quick summary of what we've already looked at, what we just read. Now look at how Agrippa responded to Festus's detailed report in verse 22 to 23a. This is the response of Agrippa. Now it's time for King Agrippa to respond to all that's happened to what Festus has said. Uh, 22, it says, Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Right? I'd like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, and uh, it says, Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So 
Agrippa says, I want to hear the guy. Festus says, tomorrow you will hear him. And then 23a, so on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall. There's their name of this place they went into, the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Here's where we actually get into the sermon. One of the things that we notice very quickly is that Agrippa was very, very intrigued. King Agrippa was intrigued. Okay, you've just told me these facts. This is what's happened. This Paul is saying these things. The Jews are saying this thing. They want to kill him because of what he's been saying. And, and he is intrigued. I mean, he literally told Festus, I want to hear him. I want to hear for myself. Okay, I believe what you're telling me, but I'd like to hear about this. I'm, I'm familiar with Jewish customs and Jewish law and the Old Testament scripture, and, and I'd like to hear this guy. I want to know what's happening. And obviously, Festus says, you will tomorrow, bro. And then 23a shows that Festus literally turned Paul's hearing into an occasion to honor King Agrippa. It's like, you're going to hear him tomorrow, and, but it's not going to be like, well, I'm just going to bring him before you, and, and he's going to tell a story, and, and, and that's it. He turns this into an opportunity to highlight this king to glorify this king, to celebrate this king. And that's a really interesting thing when you consider this is a Roman governor wanting to do this for a Jewish king, right? Uh, it's just an interesting thing. Uh, we're, the Romans were conquerors, you know? These guys were their servants, their slaves, if you will. And Luke included several details and components about you know, Agrippa's incredible entry into the audience hall. Now, I'd like to examine them, as I said earlier, and compare them to the triumphal entry of Jesus and, obviously, the return of King Jesus. And it makes total sense, right? We're talking about the triumphal entry today. It's Palm Sunday. You see how magnificent God's word is, how it just parallels, it just dovetails with this stuff? It's really awesome. So let's just begin with the first detail we see here in the text. And this one's not as important as the others, but it's still there. And it's a quick one. Number one, so on the next day, the text says. That's the first detail we see. So on the next day. Festus, in typical fashion, we saw this in chapter 25, verse 1 through uh, 12, that he was just the guy that was on it, man. He took his duties serious. He took his responsibility really serious. He wasn't a procrastinator like his, like the last guy, you know. So on the next day, what did Festus do? He went right to work, and he set up all the arrangements for the following day, right? This would have been an extraordinary feat, okay? I mean, I've seen Paul and Cammy pull off some pretty cool events in this place, and they get some time to plan it and to think through it. We just had an awesome thing on Friday where we did a Passover Seder. It was awesome. There was a little bit of planning and all that went into it. Small scale into comparison to what's happening here. This guy has 24 hours, Festus, to pull everyone together to alert the entire city as to what's happening. This is an amazing feat that he pulled off. It'd be different if Agrippa was going to, you know, be able to hear from Paul in some kind of cool meeting room somewhere and just, and just tell him what's going on. But no, he wants to celebrate this king, and so you've got 24 hours to pull this off. Uh, and this is an amazing feat. 
Festus was just an incredible leader. He really was. Next detail. Two, Agrippa and Bernice came, right? They came. Agrippa was accompanied by his strange friend, Bernice. Um, You know, in the last, and, and this is where I'll start to parallel it with Jesus. In the last decade or so, People like Dan Brown and others have tried to argue that Jesus had a wife. Have you read any of this stuff or seen any of this stuff out there? It was pretty pervasive a few years ago. When Dan Brown, you know, the, uh, this author, started releasing these books that were very controversial that uh, I don't know if they claimed to be truth. I think they did. Yeah, it's like, it's like those types of books that people write where they mingle in some historical fact and then they put a whole bunch of fiction in with it. And so what happens is the average person out there reads it and says, look what happened with Jesus. He was married. You know, they they can't distinguish. And it's just an interesting thing here. In the last decade or so, people have tried to argue that Jesus had a wife, guys like Dan Brown, but the scriptures make it clear that he was unmarried. Here's the parallel. When King Jesus entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry, he had with him no mistress, girlfriend, weird sister, wife with him. Not, nothing of that sort. Nothing like that, of that nature at all. He may have been, obviously, accompanied by some women when he came into the city. I'd say a handful of Marys and a Joanna, etc. Just read the Gospels. He had women with him, uh, but they were his disciples, not his harem as Dan Brown and others like to assert or assume. And I would say that asserting that Jesus had an earthly wife is blasphemous. Why is it blasphemous? Because it adds to scripture. (laughs) We don't take that seriously in this day and age. People are constantly adding or subtracting from scripture. And in three places in the scripture, a couple in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament... There is a clear warning that adding or subtracting from the book, you receive the curses and plagues of the book. And so the people out there like Dan Brown who make these things up and Jehovah's Witnesses and and Mormons and all of these other groups fail to understand the severity of this gossip that they create and build religion upon. And who, who is the ultimate author of Scripture? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit carried along the men who wrote Scripture. And so when you add or subtract from Scripture, you blaspheme the author. And the last time I checked, Jesus said there's one sin that's unforgivable, and that's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And so this is a very, very serious thing. And in the text, there's a really cool parallel there where Agrippa comes with his lady then we see in the triumphal entry, Jesus comes with some ladies, but they weren't his lady, per se. It's a very dangerous game people play. Now, when we look at the second coming of King Jesus, we discover that when he returns, he will be accompanied by what? His bride. What an interesting thing. Who is his bride? The church. The church will be caught up in the air with him, right? 
1 Thessalonians 4, 16 to 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. So, right, Agrippa comes in with a lady, his lady. Jesus comes in with ladies that weren't his lady. But when he returns, he comes with his beautiful, spotless, blemishless bride who has been washed and bathed in his blood and sanctified by the truth. This is an amazing parallel. Just cool stuff. Next detail, with great pomp, with great pomp, Take notice of the adjective. There was pomp, the adjective great, descriptor. Great pomp. Luke wants his readers to notice that Agrippa, King Agrippa's entrance, or processional as I will refer to it on and off, was way beyond regular. It was not normal. It was not a normal process. It was great MacArthur wrote, this scene is one of the most riveting in the New Testament. Now that's a pretty bold statement when you consider all of the other riveting scenes in the New Testament. Let's just talk, well I'm not going to talk about it for long here, but let's just mention the book of Revelation. Let's just mention the, the countless, endless miracles that he performed. We could probably count them all in the Gospels, but at the end of John's Gospel it says there's so many there's not enough books in the world to hold all of them, to record all of them. This is a, that's a pretty striking statement that this particular thing was riveting. This was a riveting event here with this king. Extraordinary, great pomp. A regular processional celebrations were pretty incredible, especially the military ones. When a victorious army general returned home after winning a decisive battle, the whole city erupted in celebration and party. The party began with his triumphal entry. I love how God borrows, deliberately borrows from cultural things to express biblical truth. There were other triumphal entries in this day besides Jesus's. And I would say his was by far the most triumphal. He conquered something that no Roman or any person could ever conquer. The party began with this general's processional. First in line, you had the captive leaders, allies, and soldiers, and sometimes their families, usually walking in chains. Some were destined for execution, others for display. So the first thing that happened in one of these processionals, one of these celebrations, was you marched the defeated people in front of the nation. How humiliating would that be? We lost, you know, beaten and tattered and broke down. Second, you had a series of carts which held the, their captured weapons and armor and gold and silver and statuary and paintings. You know, the Germans did this when they went in and pillaged countries and nations during World War II. They carted out all of the good stuff. They paraded all of their enemies in front of their people through the streets of those countries, through the streets of Germany, and they had carts filled with all of the precious things of that nation. And the Romans did that. Where do you think Hitler got the idea for these things? He didn't make this stuff up. He just thought that they were going to be like the Roman Empire. Third, you had a series of hand-built models 
Like they actually built models, like little architectural, you know, models for a building that's going to be built. They built these things on larger scale and they carted them through the entire celebration. And these things depicted like different battle scenes and victories and stuff like that. And so you had these artisans that built these models. And so as they were going by, it was almost like watching a movie. Like, oh, that's what happened over there. Oh, wow, that's what happened over in that area. So they had these models and things. Really interesting. Fourth, you had Rome's senators and magistrates, like their political figures that would, you know, be paraded. They'd be coming behind all this stuff. Fifth, you had the lictors, who were the officers who carried the signs or flags that displayed the battalion's insignia. You've, you've seen in the movies where these guys up in the front walk with these signs that have an emblem on them. That represents that general and his platoon, his battalion, his district. He's a, he's a tribune is what he is. And so you had those guys, the sign bearers. Six, you had the tribune. He's the general, right? He rode in in the most glorious fashion of all. He would be in a golden chariot with four stallions pulling him. And next to him, he'd have a companion or a public slave or maybe in the chariot with him. He always had somebody next to him. Maybe he'd have his little children or a little child with him. He would, you know, that's what he would do. He wouldn't come in alone. Seventh, you had his officers, and if he had older children, older sons, they would be on horseback, and they rode right behind him or on the side of him. I mean, this was quite a display. Eighth, you had his soldiers, and they were unarmed, right? They had won the battle. They didn't have to carry their, you know, their pike sticks or their swords anymore. They came in and wore togas and laurel, crowd, uh, laurel crowns, and they chanted... Jupiter triumphs. Remember the Roman king of gods is Jupiter. On the Greek side, it's Zeus. And so they would, they would come through and they would be chanting Jupiter triumphs, Jupiter triumphs. And then they would sing inappropriate songs in, <laughs> like at their general's expense. They would. They would literally sing these songs like at his expense like it was a comedy thing. I don't know about you, but I would be like, okay, find new material, guys. You, you know, I'm up here in all my glory. You make me look like an idiot. You know, but they sang these crazy songs about their general. Ninth, you had two flawless white oxen decked with garlands and gilded horns. And they were to be sacrificed to Jupiter that night. They sacrificed animals to their gods. You know, just as the Jews had done. To their god, the Jews, per se. And the procession, the whole processional was accompanied by loud music. Um, Paul references it in 1 Corinthians 13, clanging cymbals, banging gongs. Uh, Translation for today, hip-hop. Clouds of incense were going up. They were, you know, smoking out the place. And there were people strewing flowers everywhere. This is what the typical... Uh, processional celebration looked like from a military commander or some high-ranking official. Now, Agrippa, King Agrippa, was neither Roman nor a victorious general, so his processional was different from what I've described, but it was no less great, right? Great pomp. And so it may have been at a higher level than what I just read to you. It could have been beyond this. may have been a higher level. It may have featured more glamour and glitz Pomp is fantasia. And I thought if the fantasias were here, they'd be like, that's where we get our name. They're a family we know. Fantasia, it's where we get the word fantasy from. And fantasy is like a spectacle, something that 
kind of blows your mind, something that captures your attention. You know, you think of fantasy, you think of Disney and all those little movies and Cinderella and all that stuff, fantasy movies, something that just really kind of blows your mind. And that's how pomp is translated here. It denotes a grand, showy pageant. This is the only appearance of that particular Greek word in the New Testament. Now, great pomp is actually a description Luke used to capture the ultimate essence of this event. There were several components which made it great or that made the pomp great, right? There are things playing out in here that aren't identified by name, title, or word, okay? But there were things involved in this event that had to make the pomp really great to a whole nother level beyond, if you will. And so I don't think that we're really speculating when I, when I call these things out. I know they were a part of it, and that's what made this thing great. Luke, in typical fashion, does not include every detail because he's, he's moving quickly. Now, I want to talk about some of these components, and some are mentioned, some aren't. A, King Agrippa's apparel. He would have had his best stuff on at this thing. Kings put on their best duds when they made public appearances. That's a known fact. He would have been wearing a gold crown upon his head, one that if any simpleton jumped out of the crowd and grabbed it and ran and cast it in would have been an instant millionaire. He would have had gold jewelry around his neck, around his wrists, gold rings with precious stones on his fingers. He would have blown away Mr. T. Okay? I pity the fool. And you know why Mr. T wore all that stuff, right? Because he liked to show off? No, because he had taken those things from people and he wore them to display them that if anyone that he had taken those things from in his thug days saw him, they could have their jewelry back. Did you ever know that? It's pretty amazing. I think he worked for a loan shark or something of that nature, didn't he? He used to be a collector. He was a real thug. And that's why he wore those things. Now, Agrippa did not wear these things for that reason. He was perfectly fine with taking and taking and taking and taking, as typical kings there were. But he would have blown away Mr. T. He would have been wrapped in a kingly robe made, from, made literally from the finest linen of the province of Lydia. We studied Lydia, that gal who was from that province. She was a seller of fine purple garments and materials. And he would have been wrapped in purple. Purple is the kingly color. It's the, it's the royalty color. And he would have been wrapped in a lush, thick, beautiful handmade robe that was basically priceless in that day. Now, Bernice was not technically his queen, right? That was the sister-girlfriend dynamic. But she would have been decked out too, no doubt, right? Because you can't have that happening and then in this, you know, on the same horse or a horse next to her or in this, another chariot, you can't have her not looking her best. And so let me tell you right now, the way the sun was shining that day, their jewels and gold glimmering, it must have been a sight just to see these people dressed the way they were. Uh, their appearance would have been beautiful and majestic, even glorious. When King Jesus, parallel, when King Jesus entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, he wore no gold crown, no gold jewelry, and no kingly robe. No Mr. T. He wore a simple tunic, with sandals, right? Isaiah 53, 2 says, there was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us or people to him, right? 
You've got this earthly king who comes in in radiant glory, extravagance, great pomp. You have Jesus who comes in and he's dressed like a beggar. But when King Jesus returns in the future, he will be very different. Revelation 19, 12 to 13, and that passage will be something we come back to often. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. So you have this earthly king who comes with great pomp. You have the king of kings who comes in absolute humility, regular clothing, and then when he returns, he comes in radiant glory, dressed completely differently under a whole different set of circumstances. B, King Agrippa's transportation. Kings did not walk, okay? They walked around, I I suppose, in the palace, but, you know, when it came to outdoors, they didn't walk anywhere. Agrippa and Bernice would have rode in on a pair of Caesarea's finest stallions or in a golden chariot, the Rolls-Royce or Bentley of that day. They would have had the best mode of transportation, the most glorious mode of transportation, which would accentuate their radiant beauty and glory in earthly terms. When King Jesus entered Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday, he rode in on the back of a young donkey. Hee-haw! John 12, 14. Not much of an entrance for a king, right? Not by worldly or earthly standards, but it was foretold and part of God's plan. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Zechariah 9, 9. You see the contrast there, Agrippa and all that splendid glory and that amazing mode of Cadillac Escalade transportation and Jesus riding in on the back of a donkey. Wow. But when King Jesus returns, he will have a more glorious mode of transportation. Revelation 19, 11, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting, speaking of King Jesus, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Wow, earthly glory, you know, a king in full radiant earthly glory, and then you have King Jesus in humble transportation, and then you have King Jesus coming in the most amazing mode of transportation that the world will ever, ever see. Amazing parallels. How about C, King Agrippa's train? Luke tells us that they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. King Agrippa was followed by the highest military leaders and socialites of Caesarea, the absolute elite. And this was a big city. It was like a capital city. As I said, it was the seat of the Roman government in that province. Right? That's what I'm talking about, Holmes. He came in with, okay, Agrippa was accompanied by the Douglas MacArthur's, the Jerry Brown's governor, right? The Donald Trump's. That's who he came in with. He came in with Caesarea's elite socialites, highest, highest social people is who he came in with. They were part of his train. 
They were coming in behind him. He's out in front because he's the object of focus. And behind him are the Douglas MacArthur's and, and, the, and the governor types and the Jerry Browns and these sorts of people behind him. It's amazing, an amazing sight that this must have been. Just incredible. But when King Jesus entered Jerusalem, his train featured fishermen, tax collectors, zealots, homemakers, pilgrims, and apparently gardeners because there were a lot of palm branches all over the place. That's who he came in with. That was who was in his processional. What a difference between the two. Jesus had no elite in his procession. But when King Jesus returns, oh man, he will be accompanied by heaven's elite. Revelation 19, 14, and the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. That's John's vision of what's coming. What a difference. You have this earthly king who, who rides in with Caesarea's finest. And then you have the king of kings who rides into Jerusalem with uh, the, the community's worst, per se. And then you have him returning, obviously, with his bride, his pure and spotless bride. We're caught up with him. But he also comes in his train. Within his train are the armies of heaven, legions of angels. Oh, it's an amazing, you talk about a spectacle. Look at the differences. And as I often say, King Agrippa's scenario is included. Luke includes this scenario and the great pomp and this whole thing and the whole purpose behind it is to point to Jesus. Because all of scripture, it just it points to Jesus. That is the point. If we end it there and we don't talk about Jesus' triumphal entry or his return, we've failed because it isn't about King Agrippa. He's no different than us, except he had more money. And relationally, he was a disaster. What great parallels we see from the text. Wrapping it up. Again, for what reason did King Agrippa enter the audience hall in the first place? We didn't camp out on that when we hit it. Verse 22, I would like to hear the man myself. The whole reason why he went into the audience hall and this great pomp and this great spectacle took place was just to hear Paul. (laughs) To hear the gospel, although Agrippa wasn't really interested in hearing the gospel, but that's what he's going to hear as we will see as we study it. I love the way God takes the situation and fashions it in, in such a way that the people of this world are clueless as to what's really taking place. And that in the midst of that scenario and situation, God does his incredible work through the gospel and he saves people and does these things. Why did he this whole thing take place. It was to hear the man myself, to hear Paul speak. He wanted to hear his defense. He wanted to hear about this Jesus. But hearing Paul wasn't the only thing he wanted to do, by no means. He also wanted to render his own judgment. And if you skip ahead to chapter 26, verse 32, he gives his judgment. And so it wasn't just to hear Paul 
preach, it was to render a judgment. You want my help, Festus? I'll listen to the man and I'll render a judgment. And maybe that'll help you. And as we progress into the passage, we find out that he was almost no help. But that's why. It wasn't just to hear. It was also to make it his own judgment. You could say, we could literally say that King Agrippa entered the audience hall to judge Paul. And when King Jesus, oh, it just, it's just, it just keeps going. And you, you have to be a detective. You have to, know, I'm not boasting, I'm just saying you have to know scripture and how things play out. You gotta read, just read scripture. You don't have to study it like a freak, just read it. And God puts this stuff in your memory. And think about this, when King Jesus was about to enter Jerusalem, he pronounced a judgment on the Jewish people, didn't he? He said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her blood, brood, sorry, her brood under her wings, and you were not willing, exclamation point. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's Matthew 23, 37 to 39. You see, Agrippa entered to render a judgment. Jesus entered to render a judgment. After Jesus entered the city on Palm Sunday, he spent the whole week preaching the gospel and calling for people to repent. That's my summary of almost, I don't know, a third or two-thirds of the book of John, which is committed to the Passion Week. It's an amazing thing. He, he preached the gospel all week long for people to repent, but they rejected him. One of his own disciples, Judas Iscariot, betrayed him and then turned him or sold him out to the religious leaders. And those religious leaders, they tried him in a kangaroo makeshift unlawful court on Thursday night, and then turned him over to the Gentiles who beat him and crucified him on Good Friday. Something else that we'll look at at the end of the week. But I want to talk about it now. While King Jesus hung on the cross, he'd been beaten and battered, and he was nailed to that cross. And when he hung on that cross, his blood flowed from his head, from his hands, from his ankles, and then from his side. He was broken and shattered beaten at 3 p.m. He breathed his last earthly breath and at that moment he purchased his bride. He bought his people. He paid for their sins. They now belong to him. Even those who haven't lived yet or been born yet, they will one day and he will draw them and save them and they will be his. That's a hallelujah thing. And then when King Jesus returns, he will gather to himself the rest of his bride and then judge the world. Revelation 19.50, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with an iron rod. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. Agrippa came to judge Jesus came to judge but to save. And then Jesus will return to redeem the rest of his bride and to judge the nations. 
and to rule them with an iron rod. Let me ask you a few questions. Who are you trusting in or what are you trusting in today? Are you trusting in the King Agrippas and Governor Felixes of the world, of this world, political leaders? Well, I would never do that. Uh, You'd be surprised how many people do. You'd you'd be surprised in, in what ways we actually do that, that we put almost the entirety of who we are behind these guys. I'm going to tell you right now, they can't deliver you from the wrath to come. They cannot give you everlasting joy. They cannot give you a true identity. They cannot give you a real sense of security and purpose. Only King Jesus can save you and satisfy your deepest longings and needs. Or maybe you're trusting in gold, fine linens, and chariots, your possessions and wealth, maybe like Agrippa. Those things can't help you either. We cannot buy our way to heaven or pay God off. We cannot purchase joy, a true identity, or a real sense of security and purpose. Now, people have been trying to do this since the fall of man. And in some ways, I still try to do that, even though I have Christ. And I'm going to tell you, it doesn't work. Money cannot buy what you truly need in the deepest recesses of your being. It just can't. Only King Jesus can save you and satisfy your deepest longings and needs. Or maybe you're trusting in yourself. You've become your own Messiah. You're trying to earn your way to heaven and perpetuate your own joy and uh, you're trying to create for yourself a sense of identity and a sense of security and purpose. You're basing everything on your performance. And I'd like to ask you, how's that working for you? Are you tired? Are you exhausted? Are you ready to give up? I hope so. (laughs) Because you cannot save yourself. All of your good deeds are but filthy rags. All of our good deeds as natural, regular people are like chaff in a tornado. They just don't do anything for us. They do create a sense of false identity and security in these things. But that's it. It's just false. As I said, only King Jesus can save you and satisfy your deepest longings and needs. Only King Jesus. The Bible says that for he alone is the way, the truth, and the life. It says there is no other name under heaven by which men are saved. Only By the name of King Jesus. How must we respond to what I'm saying, to the gospel? We must repent. Repent of our political and personal idolatry. Because that's exactly what we're doing. If we're trusting in ourselves or in others, in anything other than God, we're just committing adultery. And we're actually stacking more wrath against ourselves, more judgment. And so we must repent of our idolatry and put our faith and trust in the person and work of King Jesus alone. And I can tell you this, he will take care of you forever and ever and ever. He's in heaven now, and I believe the devil is probably making some allegations against me, and he's up there as the greatest attorney who's ever been, and he's fighting for me. That's what he does. 
He's arguing before the Father against the one who indicts us day and night, the devil, and he's arguing a case for you. See, salvation is an ongoing thing. It's not just once and done in a sense. It is an ongoing thing. He lives to save us. That's his high priestly role is to save us and to defend us and to sanctify us, to give us a hope and joy that's beyond anything, to give us a true identity as a child of God. Come to him. If you've never come to him before, do it. Come to him and and lay your idols at his throne and receive him as your Lord and Savior. And maybe you already have Jesus and you love Jesus, but, you know, there's some other forms of idolatry in these things. Maybe we tend to cling to the same thing. Maybe you take those things and put them before his feet and say, take these from me, remove these from me. Remove my sin as far as the east is from the west. Restore me unto you. See, I think that's what this week is about. It's about what Jesus has done. It's about what he's accomplished. The greatest miracle the world will ever know. What he achieved for his bride. 